Hi, everyone. It's uh, Roxanne Durhage of Authentic Living with Roxanne. Thank you so much again for tuning in uh, to my podcast. So today I have a very special guest, Jessica Pettit. And Jessica and I met at uh, the CAPS convention in Ottawa. Uh, Jessica um, graced us with our presence, uh, being surrounded by us nice Canadians, like she kept saying. You guys <laughs> Nice. I remember that where she was a keynote speaker um, at our conference and I completely enjoyed um, your keynote. It made me chuckle and laugh and understand things from a different perspective. Um, so I'm just, I'm just going to, I have a bit of a bio and I'm going to read it, but what I like is for my guests to just, you know, tell uh, the listeners a bit about you when I'm done. So Jessica is, um, has a master's degree um, in education, in education and she's also um, a CSP in the speaking world as a certified speaking professional uh, which means that she spoke lots and lots and lots for a very long time and she pulls together uh, 15 years plus of um, comedy and you've uh, trained in comedy and along with uh, diversity training in a wide range of organizations um, to move groups from abstract fears to actionable habits to lead their teams to work together. Mm-hmm. With a sense of belonging and understandings, colleagues take more risks with their ideas, converse precious resources through collaboration and maintain real connections with clients over time. That sounds very nice because oftentimes, you know, diversity is uh, such um, a difficult topic for so many people. And um, I remember when I came to Canada um, and I was uh, 16 years old and um, you know, at that point, a lot of people didn't know where Trinidad and Tobago is on the map and they didn't know kind of where to place me. And I remember, remember thinking, Oh, well well, that's kind of different. Why don't you know where we are? And so having lived a bit of that, um, you know, growing up elsewhere and and then moving to North America, I I have a real experience of what that was like having lived it myself. So Jessica, thanks so much. So tell the listeners um, who you are and what um, brings you to, to a space where you talk about, about diversity and being real. Yeah. So uh, what's interesting about the concept of being real is that I think most of us, uh, and maybe I could say most women, maybe I could say most entrepreneurs, maybe I can say most human beings. I don't know. I'm only coming from my own perspective, but um, I've spent years and years and years and years trying to quote, be myself in a container that fit other people's expectations or desires but I never really asked what they were. So I was making assumptions about what other people wanted and then trying to be what I thought other people wanted me to be. And it's just utterly exhausting, really. (laughs) Um, My, my own diversity work, I almost um, completely burnt out doing the same thing I was always doing. I wasn't noticing any differences or any changes or anything. And uh, it was really frustrating. And so about three years ago, I decided, um, that what if the consistent tool that I have trying to do good work, but also trying to like have good conversations and good relationships. What if like the base of just me was enough? And um, I did a lot of research on the concept of enough. And um, I think that it brings authenticity, vulnerability, curiosity, and generosity together into a way that has been a much more invigorating way of living my life. 
and accepts my imperfections and motivates me to try new things. That is who I am. And that is what I try to inspire in other people. You know, you talk about perfect and, um, you know, I, I saw a client this morning and, and her thing was, her story was, you know, I tried to be perfect um, with what I grew up around. And, you know, it kind of worked out, say, when I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old. But then I grew up into this adult and I'm still not, you know, I'm trying to be the same way. I'm trying to, you know, be perceived a certain way by people, but I'm realizing it's not so good for me. <laughs> um, I, I'm really not being real, but it's kind of hard to step out of that role. Mm-hmm. When you do your trainings, do you, do you find a lot of people talk about things like that? Yeah, totally. Specifically when we start talking about diversity, where you have well-intentioned people who don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but they're not willing to do the messy work of like, you are hurting people's feelings. So they think that if they can like upload the right vocabulary or collect enough different experiences or people that they will then be absolved from potentially offending someone. And that's one impossible. And two, that's the easy part. The hard part is recognizing that you don't even know when you're offending someone and you're responsible for it. And so part of, part of doing authentic work is really being vulnerable with yourself and allowing yourself to be curious and generous with yourself so that when you can be responsible for who and how you are, then you don't feel the need for perfection. You don't feel the need to satisfy other people's wishes you haven't even found out what they are. You're really just working on your own. Um, not necessarily in a narcissistic way, but I don't think, I think that if at the root of it, we're all self-absorbed, then we might as well use what we're good at, right? And do our own work. So you work a lot with teams. So I'm, you know, I'm curious because I've obviously, I've been, you know, I've been a leader. I've been parts of teams. I've had to work on a lot of projects and sometimes, you know, in teams, you have people that are stuck, right? They kind of think that my way of doing things are the way that it should be done. And they, it's hard for them to look outside of themselves to see, well, you know, maybe Jessica's way is different, but it's okay. So when you get teams that are stuck, right? Let's say you have some that kind of gel really well. There's two or three that kind of clump together and one or two that are kind of diametrically opposed. So that's a lot of moving parts. How do you kind of intervene when, when you work with these teams? Well, first off, I don't know any team that isn't stuck on something. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a good self-assessment for any group trying to collaborate or work together is if you think you're a really healthy, really successful team, look at the stuff that you're not doing. Mm-hmm. Because you've probably shuffled out all the stuff that causes any conflict or controversy or stuckness so that you're only working on the things that everybody agrees on. Mm-hmm. Or... Um, and this happens a lot with like search committees is you've voluntold people who behave exactly the way you do to work together. And so surprise, the work is great. The outcome isn't great. It's not very innovative. It's not conserving resources. It's not being efficient. It's not risking something or trying something new, but like, look, the work is great, but that's not what every team is really charged with doing. 
and inspiring one another to think outside of the box and be innovative, et cetera. The two people in your scenario, the two people that are diabolically opposite, if they could agree on something, it would probably be something that is significantly more efficient and more innovative. Um, so what we end up doing is we keep the two people who are diabolically opposite of one another away from one another to reduce conflict and then just maintain the status quo. Mm -hmm. So I would say you have to encourage this and you have to encourage people who are in conflict to figure out what it is they're bringing to the table that is less good or less qualified than the other person provide some humility in that conversation and what that other person can do that you can't do. And then once you have a better understanding of each other's strengths, then you can work together. And then all of a sudden all this new, these new ideas can happen and then that becomes a habit. Because, you know, a lot of teams, they, they, you're right, they muddle through things. They, get, they hit the certain metrics that they need to. Like you said, it's not, it's not over the top. It's not explosive. It's not innovative. And, but they're still hit, hitting maybe targets, but they're not going, superseding them. Um, so a lot of organizations sometimes say, okay, well, it's kind of, we don't want to look at that. Um, because we're afraid. And I don't know if you've gone into organizations and I know I've worked in multiple hospitals in my career where they, a lot of times those systems move difficult people or perceive difficult people instead of dealing with them. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you were to been called in to consult with say a CEO that has say one difficult person, what, what kind of guidance do you give the CEO or the say the senior team Let's say this person is pivotal. They're important to the organization, but they're difficult to work with. Yeah. I mean, some people are just difficult, right? So um, I think the first thing is to figure out is um, what is it about the person that is difficult? So um, like I think I was a very difficult child. I was very difficult in the classroom, but it's because I was understimulated and bored. Mm -hmm. So as soon as I got enough agency to like, make up my own research projects and I was old enough to like on my bike, get all the way to the library without crossing any like rules or boundaries or something. And I could check out my own books. I became much more tolerable in the classroom because I was doing my own work. I was, I was more interested in what I was doing so I could do their stuff to get to do what I wanted to do. It's possible that it's just a structure. It's possible that it's a, um, Typically speaking, difficult people either are missing structure, connection to something larger, or a real understanding they're bringing something to the table that nobody else is. And so that would be my first place is to kind of figure out where is the source of difficulty coming from. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is that when we do, we get very nervous about conflict or we get nervous about what like a firing would look like either across identities or across like the capital that that person brings in. Um, Sometimes they're the founder of the organization, right? Um, There's all different kinds of politicking and things like this. And so when you move someone or you create a job for someone that's difficult and you're just hoping they hate the job enough, they leave on their own. First off, you're really devaluing the work you've moved a difficult person into um, because now that place has to deal with this difficulty and it has a negative impact on how their work is perceived in the organization. Cause everybody kind of catches on to what you're doing usually except for the difficult person. 
Um, so what I really, what I really encourage when I work, uh, when I do consulting with organizations or associations or businesses is to be able to do a self-assessment of what's missing of the strengths of the people that you're working with and what the experience of the people you're working with, and then either hire or tap into the few people who have those skills so that the, there's, there's an acknowledgement of a role someone is playing, even if they're the only one who does this, you know, so um, the ability to be um, make connections that are connected to significantly larger ideas would be really annoying in the middle of an accounting meeting. But, <laughs> um, but it's also the case that accountants books can be completely a hundred percent in order and not necessarily realize that when paired with the strategic plan and the vision of the organization, the organization isn't going to thrive mm-hmm. because um, I, I like to use lamps as a metaphor. Okay. Some people that they're a downward facing lamp. So they only see this. There are other people who are an upward facing lamp. So they only see significantly bigger than themselves. And then there's the people who are really difficult and they're like a strobe light, right? They just want to do, but you need all three in order to actually be really successful. So really it's about, um, you're looking at resourcing all the strengths at first. And then once you do that, then you're looking at, okay, what are the limitations or the blockages that allows the team to gel in a way? And then what if there is, um, ongoing conflict say between two team members do you everybody's frustrated by somebody right Right. typically i get brought in to fix the frustrating person but the reality is is that we are all frustrating to somebody Mm -hmm. so if you or i or todd can do the work required to figure out how am i frustrating how do i show up in a frustrating way Mm-hmm. then I actually have a space of empathy for the people that are frustrating me because I know what it feels like to be the person causing the frustration. Right. I know what, what it feels like. So mm-hmm. if I can do that about myself, then I can show up much more aware and responsible for where it is that I'm coming from that could be annoying other people. That habit helps other people do the same thing. And conflict is not horrible. Conflict is where a lot of really fascinating ideas come from. Mm-hmm. What's horrible is the avoiding or the, the, the lack of confrontation of, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And that's being more humble and bringing a sense of humility into a conflict so that you can actually be creative and innovative and try new things. Right, right. So tell me more how, how you came up with your brand, because um, I, I find it fascinating, uh, your brand. So tell me how you, did you work with someone to formulate uh, your brand? Or brand of good enough now, you mean? Yeah, good enough now. Yeah, because when I listen to you on stage, it is so interesting, right? Because, you know, when we, uh, when I speak too, right, you're right. You get up there and you're thinking, you're trying not to think about what others think about you, but it is so true. You kind of get up there and think, oh, did I wear the right dress? You know, did I, did I, you know, you know, engage people in this certain way. There's so many things that we go through. And I, I can, I can say as a psychotherapist in behind closed doors, people, you know, show me who they are once they've kind of recognized that I'm safe. So it's a different kind of situation, but on, you know, with your brand and, and being on stage, I, what I loved is how you unpacked it, telling your story. 
So mm. tell me a little bit more about that because I really, it, it made me chuckle, but it really made me think because, you know, oftentimes we think, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, from, you know, a different uh, country. I'm also judging, right? Mm. You know, sometimes the perception is when someone leaves you and you're foreign, they think, well, you know, you, are you judging me? Of course we all, we all, all inherently kind of, you know, making an assumption of about a lot of people. So I'm just fascinating with how you came up with your brand and how you kind of talk on stage about diversity. Sure. So, I mean, the first things around judgments and assumptions, which I think is important in your naming is that we make judgments and assumptions to feel safe and prepared. Mm-hmm. And our lived experience has taught us when we can feel safe and prepared. So that's like our lizard brains, right? Is that this is the information we need to know. <gasps> okay, let's go from there. And then my my premise is that don't stop doing that. Like old school diversity is like you're never, ever, ever supposed to make judgments and assumptions. Well, how do you ask out somebody on a date versus somebody you don't ask out on a date? Or how do you parallel park without <laughs> making judgments and assumptions, right? And I don't think it's a practice that needs to be eradicated. I think you just need to be responsible for the the patterns that you are making when there's positive or negative, conscious or unconscious bias involved in your judgments and assumptions. And what is the story behind that? What is the root of what makes you feel safe and prepared? And then just acknowledge that that is not the same for everybody else. Mm-hmm. So then you have, you can write your story just write it triple space with extra wide margins so that when you're actually engaging with someone else, they can give you edits mm-hmm. to your story. So leave room for edits so that I can find out real accurate information about the person I'm about to interact with. Mm-hmm. They know their story better than you do. You know your story better than they do. So why are we not engaging in that kind of conversation with a sense of curiosity and generosity to get, nobody likes to be wrong. So I like to say writer, right? Like our stories can become more right. So that's first, right? Mm -hmm. So as a professional speaker in my audiences, I was on an extended trip where every program I was going to offer or I offer happened to come up on the same trip. And so I just had this weird idea to have audience members write down on a sheet of paper what their favorite takeaway was. And then after I tried did each one, I stapled them and threw them in my suitcase. And then when I came home, I looked at all the sheets. And so there's many things that came from this as far as like developing my brand. And it's always interesting when we talk about branding and authenticity, right? Is that branding is not the font or the color. It's who you are, right? So um, at the National Speakers Association's last event was called the Brand Lab. And I was actually part of a panel. And I get asked all the time, like, how did you decide, like, how to be? And I'm like, I don't know, high school? Like, <laughs> I have a 24-hour headgear, and this is what happened? I've got great teeth, and I'm super sarcastic. Um, but it was just too much work to try to be speaker Jessica. So I just thought I would be Jess, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I'm, I'm known for having funky hair and weird glasses and I don't own hardly any like single colored, plain, solid outfits, right? Like I, I like me a good pattern. Um, 
but it's also really affirming that I hear or people will come up to me and that I don't remember. And I met them years ago and they'll always say like, I don't expect you to remember, but I remember you. Well, of course you do because I wear like giant polka dots or something, mm-hmm. but um, they always say like, you were so nice. Mm-hmm. Like you, I, you know, there was at the brand lab, a guy stood up and said, you know, we both were checking in the hotel roughly at the same time in the middle of the night He's like, I had no idea you were a speaker. You had no idea that I was with National Speakers Association. Something fell off his cart, and I picked it up, and I said hi and made mm-hmm. eye contact and asked him how his flight was, and mm-hmm. I don't even remember doing this. But I'm not surprised that I did that. Right. Who I am as a person, right? But that's also who needs, who you need to witness when you watch my videos or who you need to witness when you go to my website. So, or podcasting right like hello i just finished breakfast i am wearing this week's nice outfit right this is what i look like what's the what's the pattern on the outfit i'm trying to make it out so i'm not i don't know i don't know um jellyfish jellyfish okay polka dots streaming together it, it, it looks it looks very um very lively. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's uh, got pockets too. Um so anyway, so three two one back to the audiences that I had right on their little sheets of paper, something they remembered. So as a speaker, what's interesting is I offered, let's say I offered ten programs. I did this little activity, and the big lesson is I will never buy me. I will never be in my own audience. Mm-hmm. Because I'm with me all the time, which is why I'm like this, right? So um, even my husband can't do this all the time. He's like, go out of town. But my audiences are the, they themselves the audience. So I listened to their topics or the comments that they made. And what was interesting, first off, is I had two workshops that in my mind were completely different. And one was kind of a pain to do because it involved a lot of supplies that were really expensive. And the other one I really like to do more because it doesn't have supplies. Well, it turns out the same outcome for an audience in both of these. So I just stopped doing the one that had really expensive supplies. And now I only offer the one I like to do better anyway. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. So then the other thing is I looked at all the sheets across all of my programs consistently to see if there was any pattern in what they learned from me or my message. And there was. And right, you know, if it was a snake, I'd be dead, was do the best you can with what you got some of the time. Mm. And I say this, I believe this, um, it's a punchline to a lot of my jokes, it's a punchline in a lot of my stories, do the best you can with what you got some of the time. So I was like, okay, well, that's pretty much who I am generally. And then I reduced it down to three words. So do the best you can. If I believe everybody is actually doing the best they can, then it's easier for me to believe that at the heart, everybody is good. Nice. Nice. What a nice way. So basically you just dissected what people liked, the outcomes that you had in all your audiences. Mm -hmm. And then really it, it reinforced who you really are. Yeah. So I actually do believe that everybody is good. I think some people are struggling. I'm struggling, but I believe everybody's good. Yeah. Do the best you can with what you already got. Then that means that it's not about accumulating more 
or getting a degree or, you know, when this happens, then you are good or you're enough. That's where enough came from. That actually came out of um, a conversation with my brother. And I don't know if I told this story during the keynote or not, but when my parents died, I raised my brother and I felt incredibly incompetent to be an older sister and read all these books and went to all these conferences and everything. And I was at dinner with my younger brother at some point in time in this journey. And I like admitted to him that I felt uh, uh, inferior and I didn't know how to be a sibling. And I was trying really hard and I'm sorry I suck at it so bad. And my brother like put his fork down and was like, you've been my older sister since the day I was born. You're already my older sister. You could just like return a phone call. That would be enough. (laughs) Right. And I had missed the consciousness of being his older sister while I was preparing to be his sister. Um, Enough. What if what you have right now is actually enough? Mm -hmm. that's alarmingly terrifying for most of us, but that's where enough came from. And then some of the time, um, I think sometimes we wait for the perfect time. And what if some of the time is now? And what if some of the time is not now? Okay. At least you're taking responsibility for what you're choosing to enter or not enter. Which is really, you're talking about being present. Right. Like, I mean, you and I, all we have is right now. And, you know, oftentimes when I coach or consult, um, you know, or see people one to one, that's what happens. They're either propelled into the future because they're worrying about so many things or they're repelled into the past. So that space of just being able to say, wow, you know, and but we're so oftentimes so busy comparing Mm -hmm. that we're out of that space. And like you said, what if? Really, this is probably the best it's going to be. We have so many good things, but our our selective brain kind of picks out the things that are wrong versus kind of going to what's what's really right. Right. So do the best you can with what you got some of the time because you're good enough now. New brand. And it is way less stressful because it just gets to be me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hi. So tell me about uh, a bit about your com- uh, your comedic background because you're, t- you're obviously you're you, you know people like me have to learn how I mean to do it on stage and I've got a bit of humor not like you but you you're you've got a comedic background would you mind sharing a little bit about that and kind of how that helps you or enhances or sometimes debilitates your capacity on stage <laughs> well that's that last little bit's probably the smartest part um, so I mean I grew up. In a family that used a lot of humor and is uh, big storytellers, right? Um, they also, like, everyone had a PhD, right? Even my grandmothers had PhDs. Wow. So I kind of envision, like, super nerdy academics who told jokes to stay alive, basically. Um, <laughs> didn't work. They all died before they were 50. But still, they were funny in the meantime. Um I think humor, I'm motivated to use humor because I think it is the great equalizer that no matter how much conflict or how much contentiousness exists between two people or a topic, if you can use humor, you can find the middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you really can't find a middle ground, then outside of that topic, right now in the moment, you can both enjoy a good laugh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then that connection helps find more connections. 
Absolutely. Uh, I think it's very helpful. And I think that an ill-timed joke, an inappropriate joke, a joke that doesn't land can also really hinder those connections. Mm-hmm. So it's a risk. But um, most of the time I find that the reward is worth it. Do you sometimes find um, diversity? Do you do um, diversity with uh, racism at times? Do you do talks? Yeah. And how are those, um, how are those compared to just doing diversity in teams or um, are they more difficult to do? Um, I mean, to me, it's all the same thing. So I talk about every topic no one wants to talk about. Okay. Anytime I walk into doing consulting or speaking or training work with a group of people, there are more elephants in the room than there are humans. Mm-hmm. And so I just have to kind of figure out which elephants are unique to that audience. And the way to do that is to hit on the elephants that are rampant in our culture. Mm-hmm. So politics, religion, Racism, classism, immigration issues, our general fear of difference, like that's like base one, right? Mm-hmm. So then from there, I can get a little bit more specific about what's actually happening or potentially happening in the workplace. So uh, we can get to embezzlement, fraud, um, inappropriate hires, nepotism, sexual harassment. Uh, my favorite is I was doing some board consulting and there was a, an individual serving on the board who I intuitively figured out was having an inappropriate romantic relationship with three different people in the room. And everyone in the room knew it except for the other two of the people, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they wanted to do team building about working together better. And I was just like, so I'm seeing an elephant. Right. But I can't start with that. No, goodness. No, Steve, keep your pants on for an hour. Will you? Like <laughs> I can't do that. Um, so I have to start somewhere and sometimes starting at racism, which is usually terrifying for people to engage with um, and terrifying because either it's a daily thing they're dealing with and now they have, they feel that they have to do the education of it or the crazy white lady with the weird hair is going to like call out all the white men I mean, it's been done poorly for so long, but if I can start at racism and we're kind of, oh, okay, I see her approach her style and I can get to Steve, keep your pants on. It's causing power dynamics at work. Um, I'm actually serving that team. So you're tipping, you're tipping your toe in the water <laughs> based on what's in your, what's in your room, uh, what's in the context, which makes sense. You know, so racism, you think, oh my God you know, what a topic to start with. But if it's about power dynamics and differential systemically, guess what? Makes sense, right? So right. it's uh, so it, it depends on what's the context of whatever you're dealing with. Right. And I'm very self I mean, you mentioned this too. I did that, you know, several months ago, but you remember that I, I share a lot of stories about me going through this journey, right? And so um, because I think it's important to include everyone in the room and no one in the room become the target or the educator, that's what I'm getting paid to do, that stylistic difference allows me to talk about much more controversial topics. Absolutely. Well, it was, uh, I remember my memory of meeting you was meeting you at the Tim's line and I did not know who you were. And then you were saying, oh, these Canadians are so nice. And I'm like, I guess you must not be Canadian. That, that's all I thought because you were chit-chatting and they're all just so nice. And And then I was following you and I think you had probably just checked in also to the hotel and, and, you know, and that kind of stuff. And then I thought, Oh, 
she's the keynote. I had no idea because I was chit-chatting when we were in the um, the lobby of the hotel, those types of yeah. things. You are you are real. Like, I mean, I often say that that's the, that's the biggest thing, right? I'm a, I grew up in the Caribbean and I often talk to everybody. You know, my son goes, Ma, do you have to talk to everybody every time? I go, what's fun? You never know who you're going to meet. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's a, it's a nice thing to be able to see that in other people. Now, Jessica, this has been um, opening again. Just, you know, I know it's not, this was not as comedic as when you were on stage, um, but, but I've learned so much more <laughs> about um, your, your true core message. Um, I just wanted you to, if there's any last words you'd like to share or tell the, the listeners where they can get a hold of yourself or if they're ever needing someone to speak um, or just uh, resources that um, I know there's some resources that you can direct them to. Absolutely. So to get a hold of me generally, goodenoughnow.com is, or Jess at goodenoughnow.com is a great way to do that. Um, but I also have some secret pages on my website. Da, da, da. And if you go to goodenoughnow.com slash freebies, F-R-E-E-B-I-E-S, um, there's some free downloads and videos and things like that that talk about the model in my book, um, as well as like the definitions or the activities that are in the book, because of course it's like highly interactive because I have the attention span of a net. Um, but that's all there for free. It doesn't cost anything at all. And if I can ever be of service, let me know. Awesome. Well, thank you again. You know, uh, I think of my brand on authenticity and, and you're right. We're good enough with what we have at the moment and it may be the best that it is. And the more that we learn to accept ourselves for who we are, it's just a nicer ride versus looking yeah. at the other alternative. So thanks a, yeah. a lot again for taking the time. Um, hopefully we will, are, I may come to NSA. I'm, I'm still on the fence, but I'm, I know you're going to be there from what I've seen um, with our fellow speakers online. So um, hopefully we can connect then. And um, for my listeners, please reach out to Jess if, um, if you're needing anything at all. So again, uh, thanks again for listening and tuning in to Authentically Living with Roxanne. And if you're needing any more information, just go to roxannederhodge.com. Thanks a lot. Take care. We'll chat with you soon. Canada. <laughs>